This is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today, we are going to be talking about The Talented Mr. Ripley, which is Patricia Highsmith's 1955 novel about a confidence man, queerness, stolen identity, and murder. Oh, and also like capitalism and going to Greece, <laughs> the, island of, <laughs> the island of Capri. Capri. Anyway, sorry. Um, first, we're thrilled to welcome Devin Daniels, who is our guest host for this episode. Devin is a PhD candidate in English at the University of Pennsylvania, and he works on 20th century literature and the histories of surveillance, data, and the U.S. security state. He's a friend of the pod and comrade and co-host of a podcast called You're Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You, which has the amazing tagline, Two friends circling the drain of academia examine the cultural detritus of the 20th century. I mean, some of it is detritidiouser than other stuff. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which is great. Um, But you won't ever find another podcast that does as good a job with the product of late capital that is the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie. So listen, especially the Dune episodes. They were so much fun. So, uh, Devin, just tell us a bit about you, your work, your interests, your politics, why you wanted to come read this book with us. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, guys. As Megan said, I uh, work on 20th century literature. I'm particularly interested in the the novel and the state and sort of the, the history of capitalism. I have some articles recently, one in Mediations and one in English Studies in Africa, if you want to see what that work actually looks like. I also have a cluster of essays I co-edited for Post 45's contemporary series on Nicolas Cage that should be out by the time this is airing. And uh, then, of course, there's a podcast, which Megan did a great job describing, but I would pitch to your audience <laughs> as what if Better Ren the Dead was about movies and they did zero preparation? <laughs> um, Uh, Yeah, I I do not. As a listener, I do not get the zero. The zero preparation does not come through. (laughs) Seems like there's preparation. We try. We try. There's a lot of editing that goes on. There's a lot of editing. The 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 original cut of the aliens episode was like four hours long. (laughs) (laughs) I'd fucking die if I tried to add four hours of recording. Oh god! One day the fans will will like will like demand the release of the full alien cut. Like have to put it out. Your Zack Snyder moment. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, my dissertation, to get a little more specific, is called uh, Informatic States, Administration, Identity, and the Novel, 1940 to 1977. And it concerns how the uh, U.S. state in the uh, mid-20th century sought to know, embrace, define its populations uh, into forms of data and information. And so... That can sound kind of like Orwellian, but I'm actually like less interested in this technophobic uh, version of surveillance studies than I am the sort of like physical and material ways surveillance enters kind of like quotidian life. And the passport is a big one of those. So like my second chapter is entirely about passport and uh, expatriate fiction in the 50s. And I'm interested in how subjects formed identities in tension with the state's perceptions. So I'm, I'm sure you can already imagine how Uh, Talented Mr. Ripley is a big text for me. And I'm really excited to talk uh, about it with you guys. That's awesome. Thank you. So for the rest of us, with respect to why we wanted to read it, I have to say maybe I I shouldn't or or have some self-consciousness, but I really love Patricia Highsmith. 
I will say though, like when you work on literature of the fifties, you are going to have problematic faves. Like it's just, it's <laughs> just the field. That's fine. So, I mean, if you work on the 18th century, you're going to have yeah. some <laughs> hella problematic. <laughs> <laughs> Who, who's not a problematic fave in the, in the 18th century? William Godwin. Yeah, other than William. Yes, other than William Godwin. Yeah, but, but that. So she's one of mine. But like, I really like that it's pot boilery this novel and i read it in high school and it really it just clips i told tristan this before we read it like it doesn't look short but it does just move yeah yeah yeah. i also i adore the price of salt which has a similarly quick paced plot but it also has like lesbianism and psychoanalysis oh and the camera so those are some of my favorite things go read it and we'll get to this in a bit because we talked about Melville the last couple weeks and since like since we read I Need to Lose I've been thinking about the confidence man kind of a lot and I learned from let's let's call it research it isn't it was a Wikipedia thing um <laughs> there were lots of books by and about confidence men in the first half of the 20th century the University of Chicago Press published a book in 1937 called the Professional Thief by a Professional Thief, <laughs> which is dope as hell. It's annotated by Edwin Sutherland, who's this sociologist who has like invented criminology, the version of criminology from the 30s. Invented um, crime. He invented crime as a sociologist. That's how they do it. And in 1923, this guy, Edward Smith, wrote a book called Confessions of a Confidence Man, a handbook for suckers, which is beautiful and it sounds good i haven't read it but it's good as hell because there's only two versions you can find online one that's print on demand and one that's the first edition and cost fifteen hundred dollars and that is like (laughs) the short con and the long con if ever i've heard of it like yeah yeah i got it meg i'll send it to you okay dope i can't wait but with respect to this novel is tom ripley a confidence man we don't i'm not sure like Is he supposed to be read as one? Does he think of himself that way? It's just, it's more complicated than that. And we will discuss it. Yeah. The professional thief by a professional thief sounds awesome. It also sounds like this is just catch me if you can. Right. But I think so. From the 1930s and uh, and, and edited by some UC uh, sociologist, which, uh, yeah, we just bought the title. I want to read that. The genre of confessional with notes by academic is just not a thing we have enough anymore. No, no. Uh, no, we really, we really don't. Yeah, I, I, I like this Tom Ripley guy. I mean, he's yeah, he's maybe a little bit of a sociopath. Although, what novelistic character isn't kind of right? Um, but I mean, he likes maps. He likes being left alone. He hates rich assholes, and like that's me. You know? so, <laughs> he's a maps guy. He's a maps guy. Yeah, sitting alone with a map and a yeah. scotch. That sounds like a fine evening to me. But um, I, uh, no, I was I was super excited when Megan first suggested uh, we do this, and very excited when when Devin agreed to to be here today. I didn't really know anything about Highsmith other than you know her name that she was the author that had written this, and I didn't know that much about Ripley either to be honest i saw the matt damon movie years and years i guess i was in, i had just graduated from high school or something like that 
Um, and I remembered, you know, queerness was a big theme in some some interesting ways. Um, and and also, yeah, Ripley as, as a con man, but one, I think, with a very specific set of associations, right? It's, it became this kind of cultural idea out of this. Like, if you call someone a Tom Ripley figure, that sort of has some uh, some currency for even people who might not have read the novel or, or even seen the movies. So, I, you know, because of that, I really wanted to read and talk about the OG text here. And I am interested in the conversations about queerness and sexuality the novel generates. But like Megan was saying, too, I'm, I'm fascinated by the con man as a cultural literary form, if, that, if that's the right lens to think of with regard to Ripley. I think in part that goes to my 18th century interest, right? Like the picaresque, uh, which is this kind of roguish travelogue through society's underbelly. Although I would say what underbelly, I mean, underbelly is a fucked up <laughs> word to begin with, but like what that would mean when you're talking about like rich as hell American expats vacation. <laughs> in, in, uh, in, in Italy, that's it, it would seem to have a somewhat different thing than the 18th century picaresque. But also, the picaresque is populated exclusively by morons. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, yeah, there's a, like, I mean, Roderick Voltaire, half a butt. Yeah, I mean, Roderick Rand being a great example, which we will do on the show at some point, right? He just, I mean, he kind of just gets his ass kicked all over the book, right, in a way that you know, I mean, Ripley does. He's got, he is talented after all, right? He fails upward. (laughs) He he fails upward. That's right. But just the idea that that you know the picaresque lets you do things with a novel that your more kind of typical protagonist might not, I think, is interesting. And hey, Americans love a con man, right? I mean, this is the nation of the pyramid scheme. And sure, that mm-hmm. does make us slack jawed doofuses. But I think it also speaks to the degree that we live inside a capitalist telescope that tells us we, you know, we, we're all going to be J.D. Rockefeller if only we work just a little harder, a little more clever. But also, I think we another reason Americans love the con man is because the con man knows that's bullshit. So is attractive for, for that. Anyway, yeah, I'm super excited to talk about this novel. Who wanted to know that the shell game has been around since ancient Greece? Did you know? Because I did a Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> learning. We're learning. Tag this podcast educational. Um, again, we're really excited to have you here, Devin. Great Dune episodes of You're Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You. And I can't wait to listen to the 9-11 series to f- find out uh, the answer to the eternal question, whether jet fuel can really melt steel beams. I hope that's in there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and but don't but bother really, with Joe Rogan when you have your talk. Oh no, <laughs> F- find out from a trusted source. Uh, yeah, we're the Joe Rogan podcast of of uh, contingent academics for sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, okay. that is branding. Yeah, you can, you can, you can, uh, you can tweet that out. That's, <laughs> Excellent. Don't, don't tweet it. <laughs> now everyone's checking that out. Obviously. Uh, who can resist? But if you're listening to this show right now and you're thinking, I want more podcast, check it out. You'll really dig it. Ripley, talented, mister. I wanted to read it for some personal reasons that are special to my heart, which is um, I needed to find out how it ended. So let me explain. Uh, you'd think I have the internet. There's Wikipedia. I could have found out how it ended. Well, it all started in 1999 when I was 12 years old and attending a movie with my younger sister. Like I was allowed to sit in the front seat um, and go to movies by myself and all kinds of really cool grown-up stuff. But for some reason, we had a babysitter with us. And we were attending the film Stuart Little about a mouse that terrorizes a city with the miniature crop duster. Um <laughs> Or were we? No, (laughs) we weren't. We were going to see the talented Mr. Ripley in a Ripley-esque maneuver of our own. 
my dad was an open-minded guy, but 12-year-old me was not into risk-taking enough to be like, hey, dad, could I go to the gay murder movie? I know what that's about because the TV uh, commercials make that very clear. Yep, yep, that's the one with Jude Law's butt. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Remember when you had to hide because you couldn't watch Boogie Nights, though? Like, you really thought you were up for this one? (laughs) (laughs) this one this one i was raring to go i learned a lot from hiding my sleeping bag while boogie nights was on and that's a lot scarier (laughs) to be fair to being all of us but anyway i had read the Stuart little book in preparation so i was ready for any rodent and or plot based questions (laughs) that I might be hit with after coming out of the the movie. The babysitter was over 17. She could get us in. It was was the perfect crime, and I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) There was just one (laughs) tiny, tiny detail that we had overlooked, which is that Stuart Little's runtime is one hour and 24 minutes. The talented Mr. Ripley runs for two hours and 19 (laughs) minutes. So... We got to the uh, great Philip Seymour Hoffman's character getting just clobbered with an ashtray, which is like the middle of the movie. And then my dad showed up and there's like only (laughs) so long that a 12 year old who has to keep the entire plot of Stuart Little front of mind can can, you know, I couldn't hold it off that long. And also my frontal lobes weren't fully developed, I guess. So anyway, we left. I never finished the movie long after, not to brag, but I could see any movie I wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but now I know what happens. I enjoyed this. I enjoyed the first half and the second half. And uh, I am so glad to be able to chat about the entirety of it with you today. Yeah. Th- I mean, that is a very Ripley-esque story, right? It's like, you know, the, the uh, it's not mistaken, but it's, it's you know, you were concocting a sort of fiction and you had, you had planned it out. It's like, okay, I've got yeah, the backstory. Yeah, you plugged up the holes and stuff. Yeah. You were just like, I know what this is going to be about. <laughs> yeah. I, st- I studied for weeks. You <laughs> <laughs> were a little written by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. There um, was a twist at the end. All right. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so today we are going to be talking about gender, masculinity, sexuality, the con man, and surveillance technologies, but also uh, affects. So Devin, tell tell us what happens. Great. We open with Tom Ripley at a bar. He's worried that he's being followed by this man that he speculates might be an undercover cop or a pervert. And Highsmith writes, he would rather the man be a pervert than a policeman. The correct think, opinion. Yeah. Hey, yeah. But why not <laughs> and both? I, and I think, um, you know, Highsmith, as, as early as this first pages of the novel, is registering her interest in the connections between sexual deviance and like the repressive arm of the state that, you know, kind of foreshadows what's to come. He's worried he's going to get in trouble for something. We have the sense he has a reason to be worried, but we don't really know what it is yet. And in this opening scene, we get a, kind of established in what the uh, the kind of like mode of the novel is, which is while it's written in the third person, we get full detail of all of Tom's uh, internal calculations filtered through that narration. He's always prevaricating, gaming out different angles, acting out potential future conversations, potential future decisions in his head, 
And, you know, we get an example of this early when uh, Highsmith writes, quote, Slowly he took off his jacket and untied his tie, watching every move he made as if it were somebody else's movements he was watching. Astonishing how much straighter he was standing now, what a different look there was in his face. And this feeling of watching every move as if it were someone else's, I think kind of captures the experience of reading the novel. We're not just seeing what Tom does, we're seeing Tom see what Tom does. Mm -hmm. We're following along with every step of his uh, plotting. And the suspense of the novel really comes from uh, Tom's internal machinations and how he manipulates these seemingly impossible situations uh, to his benefit. And I think from the, those earliest moments, as you're describing, uh, this idea of him as like a cipher, right? Is if that's something about this as a kind of individualized character, uh, you know, it's Tom Ripley, that the blank, the the sort of chameleon, or what have you, or if there's a kind of more structural claim being made about, I don't know, like identity under sort of these sort of relations of capital. That that is one of my big questions about the novel, mm-hmm. like what that blankness or that like that kind of estrangement from self is meant to symbolize, and I'm and I'm. I'm not sure I really have a handle on it after reading the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. So um, the man does, in fact, approach Tom and asks if he's Tom Ripley. Uh, and he reveals that he's Herbert Greenleaf, who's this rich industrialist and father to someone named Dickie Greenleaf. And Mr. Greenleaf is under the impression that Tom is a friend of Dickie's, um, who Tom technically knows, but only can vaguely recall as a tall blonde fellow with quite a bit of money. Um, (laughs) how many of those could there be at Princeton? (laughs) (laughs) So Mr. Greenleaf, uh, proposes this idea to Tom that he is explicitly taken from Henry James's the ambassadors, uh, which is that he wants to hire Tom to go to Europe where Dickie has been for the last two years, kind of like gallivanting around and, and pretending to be a painter and convince him to come home and see his mother who is dying of leukemia and also to take over the family shipbuilding business, which I know Tristan would require no uh, <laughs> convincing. <laughs> but Dickie doesn't want to do this, right? That's, um, it's very weird. I, who gets rich kids, right? You know, like you, you can, you you can don't want to work on seven. boats. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Tom agrees, and we start to learn a little bit about you know what his situation is. He's involved in these various small-time cons. Particularly, we get some details about this uh, tax scheme he's doing where he has people sending him uh, fake, well, they're real checks, but he's pretending to be the IRS and they're sending him (laughs) checks. uh, But he can't cash any of them because they keep making them out to the IRS. So he just kind of has this envelope full of checks. Yeah, Yeah. He's he's running a con kind of as an elaborate prank, which is, Mm -hmm. is, yeah, and it's because he's like bored, right? I mean, it's, you know. Yeah. Um, We learned that his parents died when he was young. They drowned in Boston Harbor. He was raised by his aunt. He kind of seems to live a life where he's just kind of crashing with different people until they get sick of him and then he moves on to somebody else. The novel discusses his talent for mathematics and numbers and calculation, but he can't seem to parlay these skills into a stable income. He's also a pathological liar and lies to the Greenleafs elaborately and without hesitation, exaggerating his relationship with Dickie. And this uh, also prefigures kind of where the where the novel's going. He can do like variable 
characters starting really mm-hmm. early, right? Like from the tax agent, the IRS agent, which is like a paper only character to Dickie Greenleaf, right? So it's like appears really, really early. Yeah. And he seems to be at his happiest when he's pretending to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When he's committing to the bit. so we see him preparing for his trip we see him being seen off by his friends who don't really enter into this after he leaves but he finally takes off on this uh boat trip to europe and on the boat we start to get a sense of his unquenchable desire for what i can only describe as fancy dude shit yep he's like one of those people that's really into like curated items We get like brands. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 They're very specific I, items. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of surprised obviously he's not a watch guy like that, that Rolex isn't, isn't a big thing mm. here, you know? Well, but, he does yeah. get a new watch, but it's like good, but not fancy. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to be a main cast, real housewife of <laughs> yeah, something. For sure. And, but right now he's just friend of, you know, at yeah. the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think it's like, I, I almost think it's like Beverly Hills. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, and, no, and his and his contempt for the 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 high bourgeoisie does sort of seem to be that they they don't appreciate this shit that he that he's like the connoisseur but doesn't have access to it. It's like oh, they you know like the green leaves just have all these possessions, but they don't you know that seemed to be one of the things driving his resentment. In addition to rich people suck. Yeah, absolutely. We're um, both in a Henry James novel and in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes right now. Like this yeah, point yeah, in yeah, the novel, yeah, yeah. we're in like mid-Atlantic passage and it's like, this is going to be hilarious or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, and he actually tries to check out, uh, ironically, the ambassadors from the uh, the ship has a library apparently. <laughs> And they don't have a copy of it, but then it turns out the like middle class library has it, yeah. but they won't give it to him because he's in the upper class one. Yeah, so he so he doesn't get to read his like the plot that sort of uh, prefigures his own. But uh, he ends up in Naples and uh, works his way towards this small village of Mongebello, which is where uh, Dickie lives. And he finds Dickie and uh, Marge Sherwood, who is another expat. She's also a writer. And they're on the beach. Tom uh, kind of estimates that Marge is in love with Dickie, but uh, he insists that Dickie couldn't have been more indifferent. And he just kind of walks up to them and introduces himself. And we, we get the sense that Dickie's father has kind of alerted uh, Dickie to, to that Tom is coming, but has not, has not told him about the scheme. But, uh, but Dickie doesn't really remember Tom, uh, which makes sense because Tom doesn't really remember Dickie. We also learn crucially that Dickie has a boat called the PP. Hell <laughs> yeah, does. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> Dickie Greenleaf is one of the dumbest names uh, for a character yeah. I've ever Excuse read. me, it is H. Richard Greenleaf. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He's basically named Penis McMoneys. Yes, he yeah, is. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, Tom and Marge kinda... is gross. I don't, you know, Devin, you mm. didn't say that, but Marge is like a lady. She's gross yeah, in yeah. women ways. Yeah, yeah. And she is constantly like disgusting Tom, right? He's always commenting on like, like her bras are hanging around and just like her gross womanliness is just yeah. like really like mucking up the works of what's supposed to be bro time. Yeah. There's a moment where <laughs> Highsmith describes her as gourd shaped. And I was like, Jesus Christ, lady, it's like so just try and hold it together. So the gourd killed me. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, that, yeah, that, that was a hell of a, hell of a line, but 
as I was reading this, I was trying to figure out, is Marge supposed to be as annoying? Like, are we supposed to imagine her as actually as annoying as Tom's read on it? Where, I mean, he's annoyed because like she's interrupting the kind of the queer currents that are happening, right? And he just has no interest in, 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 in women, period. Are we at all encouraged to be more sympathetic to her than like Tom's perspective of her? And I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah, she's kind of held at just a remove from us as the thing. So it, yeah. like the novel puts this wall between our ability to sympathize with her. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there is something instructive about the fact that like what the worst thing he can come up with is like she likes refrigerators. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yes. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She has a yeah. dump truck ass and likes fridges. We do have Freddie Miles, who I think we all find repulsive. So it's like mm-hmm. he does interject. Um, excuse me, she interjects a character that is more actively dislikable. Yeah, That Freddy slip sucks. on my part is something for me to think about that I don't think we'll get to talk about, which is like, this seems not to have been framed or something as being by a woman writer in quotation mm-hmm. marks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, There's something about it. I don't know. We probably won't get to talk about it. But that's true of Strangers on a Train, too. It doesn't feel like, mm-hmm. oh, a lady wrote it. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great point. So Tom... He he's kind of clumsy at first, but he kind of gradually integrates himself into this like expatriate social world that Dickie moves in. Throughout, we get all this narration of Tom's self-doubts as he's desperately trying to make Dickie like him, something he says he wanted more than anything else in the world. And they particularly start to bond when Tom reveals to Dickie the truth behind his coming. And they sort of like, they become friends via making fun of Dickie's dad. And they uh, make these plans for how to blow this money that his father's given Tom. Tom actually moves in with Dickie. uh, But like, as we've said, he's kind of constantly annoyed by Marge's presence. And he also is annoyed by the arrival of this other friend, Freddie Miles, who is this like physically imposing redheaded fail son who claims to be a playwright they should not have had him played by philip seymour hoffman because as soon as that guy shows up in a movie i'm like oh intriguing which is the wrong thing to think about this character i I was trying to map him onto like which of the sun also rises jackasses um and i think it's i think it's maybe brett's uh asshole uh husband yes he's the crying all the time guy yeah Mm. well there's certainly no jews in this book so we can we know who it isn't. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. So uh, the kind of highlight of the uh, Dickie and Tom friendship uh, happens when they have this like epic bro time day trip to Naples and then to Rome and they stay out all night. Marge is mad that they didn't say they weren't coming home. And Tom is convinced that they're BFFs now. All the while, he's been writing letters back and forth with with Mr. Greenleaf, kind of leading him on, saying, like, oh, I'm making all this progress. Like, any day now, he's going to be, like, on a boat back to the U.S., trust me. There's also some drama with Marge. She's starting to feel neglected, uh, feels like Dickie's spending too much time with Tom. But Tom is just getting more and more obsessed with Dickie and also the the lifestyle that being friends with Dickie and having access to the Greenleaf's money uh, affords him. There's a pivotal scene where he sneaks into Dickie's room and dresses his, himself in Dickie's clothes uh, and starts impersonating him in the mirror. He actually kind of breaks up with Marge uh, as Dickie to uh, his reflection. Uh, and Dickie walks in on him and is not happy. And yeah. uh, he tells him, quote, I'm no queer. I don't know if you have the idea that I am or not. And he reveals that Marge thinks Tom is queer, which Tom denies. He says, Dickie, I want to get this straight. I'm not queer either. 
and I don't want anybody thinking I am. But after this, the relationship is just not really the same. How could it be after the uh, dressing in the cl- big dicky energy? You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah. After the single white the, female moment. The sort of knee-jerk homophobia aside, I mean, it would be really fucking disconcerting to walk into someone dressing in your clothes like yeah. that, you know? But, and like and doing you. And bre- right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it definitely. <laughs> um, yeah. And I don't know, when he said, when 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 Tom says, I'm not queer either, I mean, like, Tom is, ob- I mean, like, in, in, a, in a very broad sense, I mean, Tom is obviously a queer character, but I do... I, I do, I guess, have questions about like what, where, and all of us, I think, said something uh, mm-hmm. to this effect, like what, where his sexuality ultimately does rest. If he's sort of like not asexual to some degree, I, I just, I'm not, I don't know, or, or like to what degree his own, his kind of discomfort with his queerness is, is uh, held at some kind, makes it held at some kind of remove. I, I think there's a few different ways you could potentially read that. Yeah, and I think the, uh, we'll talk about this later, but the, the, the Matt Damon film very much just takes this to be a closet narrative. And which which uh, doesn't seem unfair to me, but I don't think the only way you could you could interpret it. Absolutely. Um, There's also like a it's like Tom has his blankness, except for our version of his interiority. But like there's a blank ishness to Dickie. He seems relatively easy to impersonate because tall, blonde, hot guys is like a type. mm -hmm. So he's doing a sort of imitation He's a type imitating a type. Yeah. And especially with his painting, he's like, oh, um, oh my God. <laughs> you know, he's like trying to be a modernist, right? But it's like, yes. modernism is over. And he's just kind of, and like Tom to me seems like he's kind of like the force of like the, the post war world of like where oh. the action is, is documents and quantities. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Dickie is kind of this lingering like, oh, no, I want to make my like personal artistic expression. And Tom understands that's an outmoded w- way of of, uh, of being. Mm. He, is, he is a color he likes to use. And it's just dumbass blue. That's the Barbara. Okay, mm. we're, we got some dumbass blue here on the panel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So the beginnings of the Tom Dickey uh, friendship fracturing really comes to the fore when Tom tries to convince Dickey to be involved in this like scheme where they will hide in coffins that are carrying like dead soldiers from Indochina to Paris, and there's going to be like dope in the coffins. Um, and and and. and, and, and Dickie doesn't like this idea, and it's this classic, like, he's, like, overplaying his hand in the relationship. Like, like come on, it's going to be great. And it's like, man, he doesn't know you that well yet. That's like, you know, maybe, like, year two of the relationship, you ride in, in dope coffins together. But, uh, this is when you find out that Ripley's good at crime, though, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, then he's just like, oh, yeah, let's do some crime. That's, we're, yeah. you know, we're pals now, you know, but, yeah. Uh, but in these coffins, huh? Yeah. Yeah. it's not like doing some shoplifting right it's like it's not just and it's not just the drug trafficking it's the we have to lie in coffins yeah with maybe a third who's dead yeah yeah, yeah. and tom is completely flabbergasted he's like i don't understand this is going to be great what are you yeah. talking about i found this guy on the street <laughs> he's legit you don't know him uh. Um, and so after this, like kind of in general, Dickie, Dickie kind of starts pulling that like classic breakup move of the like slow withdrawal, not saying he doesn't want to be friends with Tom anymore, but he's like canceling plans. He's like, oh, you know, I, I just want to do this trip with Marge. You don't need to come. 
And Tom has zero chill about it, and his uh, murderous impulses start to emerge explicitly. Highsmith writes, uh, he hated Dickie because however he looked at what had happened, his failing had not been his own fault, not due to anything he had done, but due to Dickie's inhuman stubbornness. If he killed him on this trip, Tom thought, he could simply say that some accident had happened. He could, he had just thought of something brilliant. He could become Dickie Greenleaf himself. And we really see like, like Tom's style of self-rationalization here, I yeah. think, right? Like nothing he does is ever his fault. It's that he, he was forced to do it by somebody else. Does this seem like a good plan? Because I'm kind of like, take over somebody's life who's not going to be missed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not a good plan, right? And like, no. he doesn't plan it out that far in advance, but it's like, he just, he becomes the like man for his time, I guess, after he does it, mm-hmm. he like yeah. rises yeah. to the occasion and he has this like improvisational ability to like keep things going. Yes. Um, and. <laughs> yeah. And we're t- He's and a we're- really effective surface, which is like, mm-hmm. okay, now I have to think about that too. Right. So it's like he, his, his inner life is actually kind of like improvisational as you say, but like his surfaces works really, really well. It's just mismatched with his brain power or something. He does it almost without thinking. When he does this, you're like, Oh, he's getting caught. Like any good Mm. reader of a novel thinks you're fucked. It just, it turns out though to be a really good plan because his dad doesn't care that much about his shitty painting son. (laughs) No, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So so actually, yeah. So maybe he does have like a better read on how much like Dickie Greenleaf would be missed. But I also, I mean, there's like, there's a sort of like hapless boobish quality to aspects of Ripley, but I think that's set at odds with other things we're told that he like, one reason why he does crime is that he really enjoys the challenge of it. We, I mean, we hear that a few times. It's, it's like he does this less for the money than this boredom and to just kind of feel something. And I will get to the, the, the whole will thing. But I mean, he, he he adds layers to this crime that the novel <laughs> explicitly tells us because he's he kind of wanted to see if he could, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Unnecessary layers, right? He sets the degree of difficulty very high. Yeah. Forging somebody's um, will is another moment where I'm like, are you fucking crazy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <so. laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it only takes uh, three pages for this like initial thought of of, of murder uh, from Tom to uh, turn into an actuality. He convinces Dickie to go out on a boat trip. They stop the boat in the middle of the water. I think they're like going to go swimming is the idea. And Tom abruptly beats Dickie to death with an oar and then stabs him in the side with it. Kind of like a Christ wound, <laughs> I guess. And the entire time I was reading it this time, I forgot that this is a rental boat. And I was so excited to say this, that Tom kills Dickie on the PP. But uh, <laughs> that unfortunately doesn't happen. But he dumps uh, Dickie's water uh, in the ocean. He and- can't swim. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's sort of a baller plan if you can't swim and be like, let's go swimming. Just kidding. I'm murdering you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and from this point on, the novel really fully enters the genre of the crime thriller, right? Tom adopts Dickie's identity uh, and his uh, titular talents really come to the fore. And they're, I think, not just rooted in impersonation, which he is good at, but uh, this understanding he has of the informatic traces uh whether it's like passport checks, letters, uh, signatures for checks, 
visits to the American Express that his actions produce. And he has this capacity to manipulate those traces to uh, generate a story. And he, he understands how the state is seeing and that if he's able to generate these data points, like in a hotel registry or through Dickie's passport being checked, he that is to the state that is a reality. Even though Dickie's mm-hmm. dead, if his yeah. passport has been been checked and uh, entered into the, like the log books of the state, to the state that really happened. So he's able to create this like problem for the state where there is a they they have to create a story that they have to create a fictional story to make sense of their own their own data. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And he also really benefits from just being a white American tourist uh, dressed in this like high class fashion, right? Like, yeah. um, like he is good at the impersonation. He is a good performer, but he also doesn't really come under that much scrutiny. He's very much this figure of the like post-war American tourist who is sort of like war decimated Europe is dependent on the capital of being injected. Yeah. Um, he's almost like a walking Marshall plan. Yeah. 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 No, for sure. I, no, I, that's, that's something I was, was really interested in. I, I think I said in some of our, our, our notes that we were sharing that, you know, I mean the, the literature vampire I, t- I tend to studies is, is earlier, right. Where that, where the kind of like the metropolitan citizen is like the British subject, right. Who can, who can just sort of like basic. Yeah. I mean, basically can has, has this like carte blanche to like sort of travel the world and, and question, Questions aren't asked of. I think the difference is that what makes that person insufferable is that they're a dumbass hard on. Like that's the that's the British <laughs> metropolitan. Whereas I think the American, it's like the rubishness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like I, this marinara doesn't taste anything like ragu, you know. But uh, <laughs> but but, but, which, but I think it's that not like gravy. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but, but I'm not imagining someone who actually knows what, what, what good gravy is. But I think that that's one thing that Tom is able to to sort of deploy as well, right? That he, I, I don't know, like he could kind of see through a certain like Americanness and a sort of Europeanness. It lets him deploy that identity. And I think in some interesting ways. Well, I think that has to do a lot with his objects with respect to affectations, right? So it's like, yeah. he knows the difference between like American and Italian cigarettes, like, he likes all the food that he eats. He just he is completely aware of tracking all these different objects that designate class and nation and all of these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a moment later in the novel where he's at a party and he kind of observes that like you can tell who's American and who's Italian because the Americans are always wearing Italian clothes and the Italians are always wearing American <laughs> clothes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He has this hyper attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah. But so now that he's become Dickie, Tom basically crafts this story that uh, Dickie has decided to move to Rome uh, and he cancels all of his winter plans with Marge and Freddie. And he solidifies all this with uh, fake letters he writes uh, and he signs with Dickie's signature that we see him practicing over and over again. He eventually has to kill again in the uh the final moment uh that that katie saw on film when um <laughs> the end of the movie the, yeah uh freddie miles shows up uh looking for dickie and has like tracked him down to this apartment and becomes very suspicious i think like the italian woman who who like runs the house uh he's staying in is saying like oh no dickie's up there she also and- announces his full name every time he <laughs> goes anywhere <laughs> Um, and so, uh, very quickly, uh, Tom makes the decision to kill Freddy, bashes his head in with an ashtray. And this is much more complicated because he's not in the middle of the ocean. So he, he has to somehow like carry like, 
Freddy, who was described as just of kind of like just immense proportions. Um, there of a man. Mm-hmm. And uh, ends up getting his body into a car and disposing it on the outskirts of town. But this brings the police into the story because a, a body is discovered the next day. And it eventually brings in an American PI as well that the Greenleafs hire because Dickie's name ends up in the newspapers because the police know that Dickie supposedly, uh, as Tom, or Tom as Dickie rather, is the last person that uh, Freddie saw before his death. So Tom continues to move around Italy. He follows the case in the newspapers. It becomes like a huge media sensation, right? Because particularly of the, the rich Americans involved. He learns that the uh, abandoned boat where he had killed Dickie has been found with bloodstains in it. And the police conclude that it was actually Dickie who killed Tom because Tom Ripley hasn't been seen uh, since the day of, uh, of this uh, boat's rental. <laughs> that is um, kind of awesome, right? Really <laughs> um, so to, uh, to set the story straight, Tom is forced to become himself again and like present himself to the police to be like, look, I'm not dead. And Highsmith writes, this was the end of Dickie Greenleaf, he knew. He hated becoming Thomas Ripley again, hated being nobody, hated putting on his old set of habits again and feeling that people looked down on him and were bored with him unless he put on an act for them like a clown, feeling incompetent and incapable of doing anything with himself except entertaining people for minutes at a time. He hated going back to himself as he would have hated putting on a shabby suit of clothes, a grease spotted, unpressed suit of clothes that had not been very good even when it was new. And, and and later she also writes, he felt that identifying himself as Thomas Phelps Ripley was going to be one of the saddest things he had ever done in his life. <laughs> After presenting himself to the police, there's a there's an interesting moment where the the Roman police who he'd already been interviewed with as Dickie come to check up on Tom. And it seems like the jig should be up, right? Because it's the same police from Rome that have already seen him as Dickie are now seeing him as Tom. And somewhat anticlimactically, really, he just kind of isn't recognized, like the yeah. performance works. And in particular, the police seem unable to perceive Tom across this class divide. It's not just that Tom has like changed his hair color and he, he, he talks about like not eating so he can like lose as much weight as possible right up until the meeting. But he also presents Tom as like meek and disheveled, says he's been sleeping in his car and the police just don't seem to be able to like connect these two people together, yeah. even though they've, they've met them physically. And no, it and the I, same, it's the same body. And I think your, your informatics points are really important here. It's because they, but they have an air, they know, I mean, they, they know, they, they talked to Dickie Greenleaf before cause they, you know, they saw his passport or what, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so, so yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that, that when you said that, that did really help as to like how the sort of like, yeah, the agents of the state are understanding um, like, you know, person and character. Um, in, in a way that because Tom's like, well, wait, you know, I but there's I can use that and I can, you know, it, it is uh, like the police are going to have a version of who this person is that is on paper and I can not be the person on paper and, it will, it will, and he's right. It works, you know, but mm-hmm. he's particularly good at the cold read on cops, too, right? Like when yeah. the American PI shows up, he has initially a moment where he's like, oh, I can't do a cold read on this guy. And then he is able to do it. After just a little bit of prodding because they've already, (laughs) because he's sort of like witnessed how they perceive him. And so then as soon as someone does that to him, he can cold read them. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, no, he's super good at that form of perception. And the thing that he's not good at, which I'd be curious to know what what other thoughts are on this, but he's also like, yeah, I took a boat out along with like, what? how many people took a boat out that day? 500, 600 people. And it's like 30. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Well, hmm. and the other thing, I mean, he's, he's very good at the class markers and, you know, someone's sort of like body language. What he's less, I mean, he is in some ways like purely a sociopath. And it's that like the, the kind of the emotional layer of the human he has like a lot of difficulty with. Like when he's like, Dickie, let's ride in coffins like it'll be awesome dude that if he had uh some kind of like facility for human emotion he'd probably be like okay this is coming on a little strong right mm-hmm. yeah he would have been very bad at online dating right like over eager texts yeah. like the, the the very next day like yeah. like great dinner last night do you want to like go to australia i googled you and looked at everything you've ever done oh for sure for sure <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so the fact that like tom has reappeared now again in the eyes of the state and dicky has now suddenly disappeared and along with some encouragement from tom with the with uh, the letters and and sort of like he writes these like kind of like letters implying that like dicky's like depressed and stuff yeah. Um, it kind of leads to this conclusion that Dickie killed Freddie uh, and himself. Marge begins to suspect Tom when she sees he has Dickie's rings, which she's like, how else could you have gotten these? And Tom thinks for a second he might have to kill Marge too. But she ends up at least temporarily buying his story that Dickie gave him the rings. And uh, she says, like, well, if he did that, then he must really have been planning to kill himself. He ends up uh, traveling to Greece. And during the boat trip, he's kind of, he has some like information blackouts because he's like not getting newspapers as regularly while he's on the boat, but he, he, he gets them occasionally and he's kind of following the final turns of the case. He finds out that uh, the belongings of Dickie that he had stashed in the American Express have been found. And again, this is like a moment like, is the jig up, but it only ends up confirming the suicide narrative. He uh, starts to have these kind of like, heroic visions of himself like jumping overboard and saving people and stuff uh highsmith writes quote during the 10-day voyage tom lived in a peculiar atmosphere of doom and of heroic unselfish courage he felt possessed of a preternatural strength and fearlessness he's kind of like starting to think of himself in in superhuman terms yeah. well in epic terms too like he he compares himself to to uh, i think uh, odysseus and and aeneas right and he so it's it which is again interesting the, this um the wine kind dark of like, sea yeah 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 and and mm-hmm. and well, it's also hilarious too to think of like odysseus arriving on this like luxury cruise ship for a you know for a jaunt <laughs> around that right but, but he's yeah but he's like but it like you know maybe it's that some way that he that he he isn't kind of like the the dicky sort of uh fantasy of what like kind of a masculine identity would still be even though tom knows that that's you know that's not the way these things work in in the kind of modern information state or whatever however we want to think of that but i just i thought that those those kind of epic markers that he was using there were really kind of interesting yeah and so the the final plot point uh with the dicky case is is the matter of this will that we've alluded to before right so so tom seemingly like pushing his luck beyond the point of credulity uh has forged a will um <laughs> in which dicky leaves his entire estate to tom <laughs> yeah, that's normal <laughs> and 
And he sends it to Mr. Greenleaf with this letter where he's just like, oh, yeah, I got this and I forgot about it. And I opened it and, you know, it looks like the estate's mine. I don't know what to do, but uh, here, you know, I guess that's what he wanted. And like, this seems like it's going to have to blow up in his face. But again, he gets this letter from Mr. Greenleaf that's like, yep, seems like that's what he wanted. And yeah, he definitely did kill <laughs> himself. Legit. So, you know, I guess we're going to give you the money. Um, and uh, it seems like everything's worked out perfectly and he's won. He arrives at Greece and he has this uh, kind of paranoid vision that this uh, group of police officers is waiting to arrest him. But he disembarks and the police don't actually notice him at all. Uh, and the narration asks, was he going to see policemen waiting for him on every pier that he ever approached? He pulled his shoulders back, no use spoiling his trip worrying about imaginary policemen. Uh, and I think this image of just sort of like imaginary policemen encasing the globe is just a very like potent image of, of the ghostly form that U.S. imperialism takes. Um uh, the, the kind of like unofficial colonialism of U.S. imperialism takes uh, in this period. But uh, he gets into a taxi, asks to be driven to a hotel, and the novel ends uh, with uh, him speaking in Italian, Il Melio Albergo, Il Melio, Il Melio, uh, the best hotel, the best, the best. Yeah. And uh, we conclude, The yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. <laughs> they take him to Best Western. <laughs> Duh. It was no, it, it was fun. I really love this. Uh, my version it then included the first chapter of Ripley Underground, and I started reading it, and it's about like an art fraud, and I'm like, I don't think I have patience for this. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe I, you, you guys know a lot more about this series than I do, but I was like, you know what, I I like where this ends. I don't need to carry this follow this character further. <laughs> uh. Will you give us the context on this one, too? Sure. So uh, Patricia Highsmith writes uh, Talented Mr. Ripley in 1955. She had gotten her start as this sort of kind of yeomanly writer of comic book stories. But by 1955, she's a pretty established writer of thrillers. Uh, her first novel, Strangers on a Train, has been adapted uh, into film by Hitchcock. She had published The Price of Salt, uh, also known as Carol, under a pseudonym. But Talented Mr. Ripley is probably her most popular work, and it ends up spawning this uh, five-book series uh, called uh, The Ripleyad, um, that uh, the sequels are published from uh, <laughs> um, the sequels are published from 1970 all the way up to uh, 1991. Uh, the last one comes out. Ripley's been adapted to film uh, many times. As we've mentioned, the Matt Damon movie is probably the most popular. Uh, there's also a French uh, film called Purple Noon. There's a, a film called The American Friend that I think is an adaptation of the third book. And uh, he's, he's, you know, kind of one of the like classic characters of the genre. This is um, a weird question. And I don't know if you even know the answer, but uh, after, so Strangers in a Train was written in 1950 and adapted in 51. Is there, is it possible she thought about adaptation when she was writing it? Cause the scene in the boat is like ma made to be filmed. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if she was explicitly, but I, I think she had to be, right? Because, uh, like, she, it, it had been adapted so quickly. Right. right. It wasn't like, uh, like, it was already on on film when she uh, was writing uh, Ripley. And, like, in her in her uh, writings about, when, when she writes about writing, she has this very, like, kind of craft uh, relationship to writing. Mm -hmm. Like, she's very much like a working writer. And I feel like she had to be thinking about this. Like, I'm trying to generate income. I'm trying to, like 
get thrillers out that people are going to buy. I'm trying to uh, get things out that are going to be adapted. So I wouldn't be surprised at all. Because it's weirdly in common with, we talked about it with um, Rosemary's Baby, although like he has, you know, uh, Levine has great politics, but (laughs) he certainly (laughs) had to have thought that his books would be adapted given what happened uh, with, um, it's not To Sleep With Anger, that's a totally different movie. You know what I'm talking about. His first book. She's similar in that sense, right? That like she had already had something adapted immediately. Yeah, yeah. Highsmith herself is a complicated, somewhat unsavory person. Her (laughs) politics leave uh, little to be admired. She was an ardent supporter of Palestine, but in a pretty starkly anti-Semitic way. Um, (laughs) That's not the right way to do that. (laughs) And I don't mean like, you know, like mainstream media calling support of Palestine anti-Semitic. I mean, like real, like pretty clearly bad stuff she's saying. Right. She also kind of falls into the racist critiques of the welfare state that I think a lot of uh, figures in her period did, even figures that considered themselves like liberals or whatnot. She's been described as a misanthrope. uh, And while her sexual relationships were primarily with women, she didn't seem to like them very much, saying, (laughs) quote, I like most men better than I like women, but not in bed. And she talks about kind of like trying to convince herself to be in relationships with men, but she just couldn't. She just couldn't do it. She felt a uh, real affiliation with Ripley, the character, uh, and talks about how effortlessly this novel was for her to write. Uh, She says she she felt like she kind of became Tom while she was writing it, and it just spilled out of her. Yeah, neat lady. Despite (laughs) my uh, say, I identified with his his contempt for the rich and his map enthusiasm. I think that's probably weird if you find yourself like, oh (laughs) yeah, yeah, like this is me, man. This totally black weirdo. Like, yeah, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, And it's weird because while Tom is uh, hyper competent at manipulating media. And the communication systems of his time, Highsmith found herself constantly beset by those same forces. In her how-to book, uh, Plotting and Writing Suspense Fiction, which I really recommend because it's got, it probably has good advice. I don't know. I don't write fiction. But like, there's just all these weird, like, biographical vignettes she, she kind of inserts. And she writes, quote, I have scarcely a morning that doesn't bring something in the post that could be called physically disturbing. I have never been sued for libel, neither have I any debts, but there are other things that can plague a writer. The insistence of the government that a writer estimate his income for the coming year, a thing impossible to do. (laughs) News of the loss or appropriation of possessions brought about by moving or traveling from one place or country to the other, or difficulties finding a dwelling place. After opening my post on many mornings, I indulge in a few minutes of anguish and muted screams, then devote the next hour or more, if necessary, to tackling the mess. Um, (laughs) Seems like everything was doing great over there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I can only imagine what she would have been like in, like, the era of Twitter. Oh, God. Oh, God. God. I'm imagining, like... Naomi Wolf combined with like fucking Ann Coulter. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, why would we cut that? I think that's great. <laughs> no. I didn't know if I was about to say something worse. I didn't know yeah, what yeah. the second mm-hmm. was. No, the uh, no, but uh no, that's right. She she would have definitely been canceled pretty quickly on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, in this in this quotation, it's interesting to me how Highsmith uh despite her stated feelings of affiliation with Tom 
much closer resembles the uh, marks that Tom is going after in his tax fraud scheme. Like he specifically talks about like targeting like artists and writers who never have any idea what's going on. Right. And uh, I think like the, the last victim we see him pick is a comic book writer specifically. Yeah. Um, and so while uh, Highsmith kind of hated this system of bureaucracy and administration, uh, it's also the enabling condition for her fiction. All of her novels revolve around documentation, newspapers, identification um, documents and other media objects. Tom's uh, queerness is also interesting historically uh, in relation to the sexual politics of the Cold War. Highsmith is writing during the height of the Lavender Scare, a sort of twinned phenomenon to the Second Red Scare in which panic about homosexuality and the potential inability to detect it uh, is linked to communism. Uh, Homosexuals were thought to be more likely to both be communists and be uh, uh, likely targets for communist blackmail. Mm. So obviously the, you know, the response to that is to is to repress them right, right. Like, that uh, will make everyone safer yeah, yeah. <laughs> they won't be vulnerable to that blackmail if yeah. you just completely uh stigmatize it yeah. also i mean yeah. what a perfect summation of reactionary chud us-ness is com the critique is communism is gay right like, I mean, <laughs> like, I yeah mean, excuse Jesus me sir it's also for jews i think we have yeah. to get all yeah. of those things yeah. in there yes yeah oh which are God. all the same thing actually yeah mm-hmm. that's true yeah and this this association itself, uh, you know, has a longer history um, of this association between espionage and non-normative sexuality, uh, which Erin Carlston writes about in her book Double Agents, which is very good. And these cultural associations essentially collapse sexual and political nonconformity into criminalized deviance, and they create this image of the unseen homosexual spy who's lurking everywhere and nowhere within and against the state in service of the communist threat. That sounds so much cooler than reality. <laughs> it does. No, it's all, yeah. Yeah. Just gay yeah. communist James Bond everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. We all wish. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm interested in what, uh, what Highsmith is doing in this context, right? Because she doesn't resist the association of queerness with espionage. Tom is, after all, this master of disguise and forgery. But she disaggregates this figure from its communist associations, Tom instead is essentially a perfect capitalist. He's uh, devoted to acquiring wealth and commodities, and his queerness, in fact, seems to make him most apt for navigating this world of documented identity because he doesn't feel this scandal at the incongruence uh, between his documented and real selves, right? We might compare him to like a modernist like Ezra Pound, who was like furious at the idea of having to produce a passport. but uh, but Tom doesn't experience that. And so I'm not sure exactly what Highsmith is doing when, by by doing that. Uh, but I'm interested uh, what you guys think about it. Yeah. Hey, Devin, do other people, how often do people in the 50, 40s and 50s novels track their own exploits in newspapers? Is it just this in Native Son or are there other books too? I feel like it happens a bit in Giovanni's Room. That's true. Yeah. It, okay, um, you're right. And is it in The Stranger too? Uh, I'm not sure about the stranger. I mean, it happens. It, it definitely happens in uh, all of right. Yeah. Oh, um, it's his, he's obsessed with it. Does it happen in bowls? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Like I know that, like in the sheltering sky, there's like the theft of a passport, but I'm not sure if like the newspaper actually enters into it. But but Wright and Highsmith are both like obsessed with it, right? Like uh, people uh, 
people reading reading newspapers about crimes they've committed. Because that's such a weirdly like fake. It's like fake true crime, right? Like it's mm-hmm. faking the sort of publicness of something that this is so not a thought yet. But I'm just I I just found it really interesting because it was this book is not much at all like Native Son, but that particular thing stood out for sure. And there's like a scene in uh, Giovanni's room too, where like uh, David is freaking out about how the uh, newspapers are depicting Giovanni, Giovanni. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a foreigner, and and like and and they're they're also depicting the the guy he kills as, as like being this like upstanding member of the community, right? And he's mm-hmm. like yelling at, at his uh, his partner Hella about how like this isn't true, and and there's this very there's this line Hella says with like. Well, it's not that it's not true, but there's like another truth, right? And it's, right. it's this very like, oh yeah, that's what the novel's doing kind of line, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing it, it this has to do with kind of like public faces and public narratives and things like that, and and the sort of like sensation and kind of mass media at the time. But I also think there's a very sort of like Althusserian ISAs like, like convergence of here that like the I mean, certainly a Native Son, right? It's like the press narrative is almost as uh, and maybe even as, as central to uh, the machinations of the kind of white supremacist state as like the police are here. It's like, it's not the press. I mean, the press can intrude in this very sort of like ominous way for Ripley, but it's also like this, you know, this kind of public story that he's throwing out pieces that help to kind of shape what's going into the newspaper. I mean, I think it still has that effect, right? It's that there's, there's this kind of press narrative that kind of in some ways drives or coincides with the sort of like police narrative and the state narrative maybe like i mean like the the guy coolness i guess of tom uh, or like why why to whatever degree we do sort of you know find it fun to kind of like be with this character is that he has this ability to kind of shape that in some ways but it still intrudes it very kind of um like you know when he's when he's kind of terrified on the ship going to greece like what are the cops going to be waiting for me i mean one thing he's he's like oh i'm not getting the newspapers i need to see how this is being Mm -hmm. reported you know yeah 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 well he's great at ducking being institutional determined right so it's like the cops try to ask him questions but he's like never criminalized or the newspapers do all this stuff he's also not a veteran which is noteworthy at this period of time or he's not described that way Mm -hmm. so he's not Mm -hmm. he's not um militarily determined either yeah yeah well i guess it is interesting the way he interfaces with these things in general because if you think about the the stuff that happens in native sound like the press like busts in and like there's a body, yeah. Yeah. And then he's tracking. It's not like Tom is talking to reporter. He's right. like spreading that he's diffusing information and then seeing how it filters back. And not only how it filters back in the story, but like, oh, the, the, I, like I shouldn't have, I wouldn't have seen this story. It's it's on page eight billion under a ad for an exercise machine or whatever. <laughs> that yeah. jiggle, yeah, jiggles yeah, yeah. your tummy. Yeah. yeah. For the shake weight, it's right under that. <laughs> yeah. And and you get the sense that it's like he needs the uh he needs the expatriate situation to really fully activate his powers, right? Cuz like yeah. he's been doing these cons in the US, but they're like not going anywhere. They're too small time. There's too much like there's too much uh surveillance around him, right? But he doesn't want to be in a world of no surveillance because he needs those those uh systems to manipulate. So it's like this 1950s Italy gives him this like perfect mix of like, there's just enough eyes on him that he can create these false narratives, but not too much that he can actually be caught. 
Yeah, like he can't do an impersonal crime, like the tax stuff. Oh, yeah. It just, it doesn't work. He needs that Mm -hmm. thing. Like he needs to become someone because he's sort of empty. And so his, he's a, he's got like a crime inside of his soul or whatever. (laughs) But it has to, he like has to stick on to somebody to see the specificity of it or, or to like actually play it out in some way. He's so contingent and dependent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what is the sort of like gendering, genderiness of that? Right. Because it's like, we, I was just sort of earlier saying that like there's a flatness to him that allows him to then pick up Dickie's sort of like flatness because like men in particular are highly legible to him in ways that like I actually think women are not or they're like left out or something because they just have like big butts and their underwear <laughs> lying around. Yeah, and he, he's so repulsed by them. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit about like what what Tom's queerness means, what it looks like, and, and I do I do still have a lot of, like. You know, because, okay, is he is he drawn to Dickie Greenlee for uh, the that that kind like he sees another sort of like blackness that he can do something with? Does he want a friend? Right. <laughs> Just a friend to Pella. Is it like very sort of like erotic desire? I think almost feel like you could read the novel all those ways. Like, I think there's a version of this novel where like the, the kind of like sexual attraction exclusively between men. And like when women enter, that's that, that's like the big, that's the problem for, mm-hmm. for Tom. And that, that makes him very sort of like uncomfortable, but and I think Dickie and Marge aren't even really a couple. It's yeah. like yeah. his, his mm-hmm. nuttiness is all like about this, like sort of sublimated eroticism or like yeah. companionship that he's really obsessed, but he is obsessed with him like sexually, yeah. but it's, it is sort of sublimated. Well, and I guess, yeah, like what, what do we make of Dickie's sexuality too? Right. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he, he, that he, yeah, the margin, he don't have this at least close kind of like romantic sort of sexual relationship that sort of Tom fears. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, Tom, it feels like he just wants to, like, be inside of him right. in yeah. all ways. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, the clothes. What, however, it doesn't have to be that he wants to fuck him or whatever. It could be any, any old. He wants to be inside of his life, like, in his stuff. And I wonder, the Marge stuff is so... I, I'm very curious how much of that is projection because you see him basically identifying with her as being in some way he's projecting but also also seeing like okay that the dickie is distancing himself from her it for whatever reason not to hurt her blah 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 but then she writes that letter back to him when he's like why didn't you admit to me that like i think that you're queer and and it would have been cooler if you just said it and i think that tom is like sort of nothing and in that letter, she doesn't seem like, you know, like a sack of potatoes with a bra hanging out. She seems more worldly and mm. that she has more chill than we've seen in the book. So in what ways has Tom reluctantly been inside of her sort yeah, of thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I think she ends up having like the most perceptive read on him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Ob- yeah. Obviously, she's the most keen on like his crimes, of any of the characters, but but in that letter you referenced, Katie, he um, the full quotation is uh, all right. He may not be queer. He being Tom, he's just a nothing, which is worse. Mm-hmm. He isn't normal enough to have any kind of sex life, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think I think that figure of of nothing really gets at kind of what's threatening about Tom. Yeah, because he 
while being a master of signification and manipulating it, he seems to have this capacity to step outside of signification. Like the way he's able to step outside of himself and view himself. And obviously we're privileged to his perspective, but I almost get the sense that like Highsmith thinks this is like his special power. Mm-hmm. And it's something that the other figures in the novel can't do. And like, like he's able to reach this kind of like pure selfness that can't be tied down. And then, and thus is like threatening to everyone. Yeah, that letter made me think of when they're on the beach and they're watching like these acrobats, and um, Dickie's like, they're fairies, I think he says, or something. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, what Tom says is, what did he have to lose? Tom just has nothing to lose. And it's not just material the way he has nothing to lose. Like he has no persona to lose, no regrets if he can't beat Tom anymore. I don't know how to make heads or tails of that, but it just, it seems like those two things, like his special ability and his, you know, his uh, personal curse or whatever. And that, it doesn't have to be in any way like a blunt interpretation of like, it's not, it's like not at all an allegory of the closet. But when he says he has nothing to lose, it's like, well, but you clearly have not accounted for something obsessive here and at least in the be- in that first scene in particular i'm like oh he like f- fuck some guy and then somebody's looking for him right. right right so it's like it appears a sexuality when it's different f- in a bodily way or something yeah or it's like he's how yeah. he's sponging off of the guy early in the novel right yeah yeah. Who's the guy yeah. he's living with who just is, who has like kept uh, boyfriends for? Ben something or other. Or no, there's a, yeah, there's there's this other guy, but who I think you're talking he about like for. Breaks his glassware and yeah. gives him 60 bucks or something. Yes. Um. What is that guy? Bob Delancey, I think it is. Yeah. There's, there's a few, because he also references some of the people he's also done with this in the past. So there's like a few names that float around. But yeah, we get the sense that he kind of like, he, he has these, uh, social relationships where at least what we know he's doing is he's like living with these various guys kind of until they uh they don't want him around anymore yeah um yeah yeah and he he kind of balances through all these different sort of social scenes in the the same way like there there does seem to be yeah he he probably proposes that they you know do a dope smuggling thing no but like the, the obsession thing is interesting because it's obs- it is it's clear. I mean, yeah, he clearly becomes obsessed with Vicky Greenleaf, but like it seems like all of these relationships are built so much on contingencies too, right? Like he didn't he didn't even remember Dickie Greenleaf. It's like this guy's dad went out and fouled him in this very kind of obsessive ways, like go get my son back. So I, I don't know. I guess I, it's just like well, what what that means that the, the the obsession seems so born out of accident and contingency that that he's not really driving and some way Mm -hmm. i don't know that that would so much matter in a strictly kind of like you know actual psychological sense but i think it does sort of in a novelistic way like i mean we i I can't think of a lot of examples where we have had a character who is like kind of becomes fixated but in a way that seems so like well this almost could have landed anywhere right it's just the Mm -hmm. or or that he or that this is kind of like a repeating pattern for him in some way Mm mm-hmm Or like the fact that he gets away with the one murder precisely because he does another. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's not how gives him the out. That doesn't seem to be how like a murder novel would work. Yeah. I think like Highsmith, it's interesting to think of Highsmith alongside someone like Wright, you know, Wright with like the really interested in like determinism as a problematic. Mm -hmm. Right. And, 
And it seems like Highsmith, because she's operating in this genre of the thriller, she's just kind of like obsessed with contingency and exceptionality that emerges even from the most deterministic of systems. Yeah. yeah. And so like Tom is in some ways like the exception that proves the rule of those systems, hmm. right? It's like mm-hmm. even they're all functioning perfectly, but she's she's imagining like what is the like string of coin flips yeah. that would enable those systems to be confounded. Yeah, yeah. Well, and uh, yeah, and I mean, the, the, the system all, like does allow us for, I mean, the system's a system, right? And it, but it allows for sort of like local, like kind of variants, or even as an individual, you to kind of like, you know, work your way through it and it, like it, it, to, to, to manage those coin flips in a way that's like advantageous to you. It doesn't change. I mean, you know, it, it that changes very little else, right? In some ways, I mean, because the, the systems don't really care about what happens at the individual level, but the individual cares deeply about what happens at the individual level, right? Like, I mean, n- nothing that Tom does sort of upends the kind of like relations of class and capital and right. like U.S. empire, but it does enable this one person to, you know, uh, in a very sort of like capitalistic and individualistic way, change outcomes in their favor ultimately. Although, although I mean, I think as, as you pointed out at the end of your, the summary, still with this kind of pervasive fear of the surveillance state around him, right? So it's like, it, mm-hmm. it, I guess it works out for him up to a point. And interestingly, he can't actually do it as he's he's one person, but he can't do it as one identity. Right. Right. He, right. he yeah. can't do yeah. it as the individual. Yeah. Well, he has to be yeah. flat so he can do so he can be all things simultaneously, which is like as far as you can possibly get from Richard Wright, because that character is already a criminal before he's ever done anything. Right. So he yeah. can't yeah. be there's no circumstance in which he's anybody else but Bigger Thomas because yeah, that yeah. character has to be filling in the ba- vast space of determinism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously, I mean, whiteness then becomes super important to this, as does just, I mean, rich Americanness, right? But yeah, I mean, the, the it, it, possible for some individuals to spawn these multiple identities in a way that it would not that well that uh, in uh, other individuals just the system is never going to read as such right like mm-hmm. so there's no there's there's no groundwork for that to take root on mm-hmm. and and something else he accomplishes right by by winning as a, as an individual he's also kind of saving the green leaf's capital from stagnation right oh like, yeah dicky has kind of just has this he's not doing anything with this wealth right like he doesn't even own a refrigerator when we meet him he he's got his house he's he wants to live in this sort of perpetual bohemian lifestyle that he can do forever with the amount of capital he has but like when tom gets that capital both by becoming dicky and later with the inheritance and like tristan you mentioned like in the future books he like sets up like a weird like art company that's like the paintings are all forged right but he he reactivates this capital Hmm. so i wonder if some of his success is like contingent on the fact that like he's ultimately serving uh capital's desire to keep circulating well that's interesting that that opens up the the whole like what what is the con the con man in this too right (laughs) that it's like he yeah like capital gets reanimated specifically as like it's like there's nothing that's a con about like big like dick swingy chip building operation like that's that's what america (laughs) god damn it you know like but Mm -hmm. but instead like the 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 new form of that is like fucking selling bullshit to dipshits so like capital gets you're right i mean capital 
Immortals getting reanimated, but in this like more and more kind of farcical version of what that would be. Um, but that makes Tom more money, and Tom that's how Tom you know it gets like quote unquote success, you know, in these capitalist terms. When he's entitled to it in a totally different way for being in Europe, right? Because like it's economically determined in a totally different way. Like you're so right, Devin. Like he could never do this in mid-century U.S. Right. Like it's just not an available possibility. It has to be in like the situation of the post facto. It has to be post war, not in the way of like designating an era, but of designating this real bombed out spaces. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Katie, can we play a game? We can play a game if you are the talented Mister Podcasters. <laughs> so. <laughs> I think we're the I think we've established. okay, Mr. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're very talented and special and that you always eat your vegetables. Very good. So we're going to have a little little quiz today to see if, if you could get away with doing all kinds of crimes. If you could gallivant through Europe looking at your friend's shitty paintings and wearing his pants. <laughs> uh, if you could kill a guy with an oar uh, or an ashtray. If you can... If you can improvise again. So to that end, let's let's play this game. Question number one, get in the mindset of success win murder. You're carrying around a dead guy. As that's happening, unfortunately, you run into an Italian man on the street. <laughs> what do you do? A, say, he's not heavy. He's my brother who happens to be a rich dead oaf. <laughs> <laughs> B, blow your booze breath into the passerby's face and get away unscathed. Or C, loudly announce, Freddy, you're getting too big for me to carry you like this, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Okay. I like the last one. Yeah, I do too. I like (laughs) calling attention to myself. <laughs> I am a uh, I am an incredibly bad liar, so I'm gonna have to go with B because I'm just gonna have to rely on the uh, the disgusting uh, alcoholic breath. Yeah. Uh, so I don't actually have to talk to this man. Right. Yeah. That's so the truth. Immediately realize I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm up to something. No. B, the strength of your aura. Yeah. You're going B, with. B B is the way to just make the person leave you. It's like I'm dealing, not dealing with this fucking drunk, but like. Pretend, pretend he's like God. I don't know. He's your like. He's yeah. He's he's your large dead son. Yeah, he's your large dead <laughs> son, right? Well, that's always a good move. And speaking of other good moves, uh, we're moving to Paris now. What's your favorite part about Paris? And for uh, listeners, that's the place you see after London, but before someone's <laughs> underpants. That yes, yes, yes. Mister um, so Hemingway a- lives there. <laughs> yes, he does with his cats with more toes than they should have. Yes. Um, a, uh, your favorite part is explaining after your trip that the Mona Lisa was smaller than people think and watching their surprise, having never heard this before. <laughs> B, farting on the street where a guy's playing the accordion and wearing a beret because the sounds are similar <laughs> and you can get away with it. <laughs> or C, the trip over in a coffin. <laughs> Are we are we smuggling dope or are we doing Dracula? <laughs> well, again, um, live your truth, I guess. 
I was going to go with C for for like what we do in the shadows reasons for yeah. for exactly what Tristan just raised. Like, give me a little of my native soil and and send me on my way. I find myself. I don't. I'm really revealing myself to be a disgusting person in this <laughs> in this quiz. Uh, but in addition to being a horrible liar, I feel like you know. I often find myself with like a fart or two in the tank. Yeah. I'm trying to get rid of. <laughs> yeah. And, Respect. Uh, I, yeah. I think I would embrace the uh, the accordion. Uh, so I'll go B. I mean, particularly That's brave. Thank you. That's I mean, what the Zoom it, mute button is for. for mm-hmm. Paris. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, <laughs> did you know they got good restaurants in Paris? Is right up there with the uh, the, the the Mona Lisa size thing, right? Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, you have a very cheese heavy meal. You know, like <laughs> as, you, as you walk around, I, I, I wouldn't fart on the accordion player, but if it was a mime, I definitely would. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh, but he's definitely going to hear you. Yeah, you right. fart in the silent. I was going to say, but, that, but that's I kind would of fart the, in the library. <laughs> the mind knowing it's On happened the is Lisa. kind of the mind knowing it's happened is kind of the point. Uh, but, mm-hmm. but if it's not, if it's just a poor accordion player, I, I think yeah, I, I want to, I want to be uh, a Laszlo here. Uh, <laughs> my coffin, you know. Uh, and to be clear, we're not farting on the accordion player. <laughs> we're, we're just using the sound to, to yes, exactly. <laughs> as the zoom mute button. Yeah. We're not mm. monsters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, question three. What is the worst thing that can happen to you? A, getting dumped by a guy and his dad on the same day. B, <laughs> getting dumped and only walking away with a fridge that's amateur hour Marge. Or <laughs> C, getting dumped off the side of the boat and is an identity theft murderer says, guess I'm the fancy lad now, old sport. (laughs) First one, because I have been watching too much of The Real Housewives and I feel like that could happen to any of us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm A as well. Like, I can deal with being dumped by the guy, but his dad on this, uh, right on top of it, that's too much for me. That's rough. Sorry, I was was actually too caught up in the the getting dumped by the dad too. What, What was the second one again? Uh, getting dumped and only walking away with a fridge. Oh, that's, um, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's well. I mean, you know, there's there's only two fridges apparently in all of Montebello, right? So that's you know, <laughs> it's a little bit. Uh, you know, it's actually oh, I came out on top of this. Your fridge and your giant ass. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. Hey, I mean, that, that sounds that doesn't Super sound too bad. A giant ass and a fridge. I, I don't know. It sounds like you're kind of winning that situation, right? I don't know. And sorry, we we were going for the worst one. Yeah, like this is a rough day. Yeah, I mean. I don't know. I feel like getting dumped off the boat would really, you know, undercut my yeah. that I'm the captain fantasy, right? That's like tough. I don't, I don't by wanna... a guy who can't fucking swim. I know, like getting getting yeah, successfully mutiny. I can't stop thinking about this. A dude who can't who can't. Yeah, we, yeah. That's one thing we could have talked about more. Just like why that that yeah, just that weirdness, right? Like he he's terrified of water, and yet like he does all of this shit on the water. Yeah, that I can't I can't let Ripley mutiny me. So that would be the worst for me. Aye, aye, Captain. Um, (laughs) Okay. Uh, Number four. How do you get two-thirds of experts to believe a signature you forged is real? Uh A, print out the signature written in the font Joker Man. Mm -hmm. Trace over it, and uh, nobody can figure that out. B, uh, you just turn it upside down and trace it or whatever the thing is. Or C, get in a tub, blow bubbles, and get precisely the correct amount of drunk, and then kind of just have that. Yeah. I, 
So I'm going to go with C because here, here's the thing. No one could ever say whether my signature was forged or not because it's it's a, it's just scrawl and it never has the same thing. It's, it's probably it's like psychiatrists would probably have some things to say about this. So that's kind of like just perpetually just get so drunk before you write your name that it just it's it's such a mess that no one's going to, you know, it's like, OK, I mean, <laughs> oh, this is a signature. I would have had no idea. I mean, that's kind of how I roll through life. So I think that'll be my strategy here, you know. <laughs> okay, I love it. I mean, I shouldn't admit this for like almost certainly what are legal reasons, but like I I'm I'm old enough that um I used to be able to get out of going to class with like a written note from my oh, parents. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I can like absolutely do either one of my parents' signatures with no hesitation. The second one because like I did practice upside down and and never never once was I caught yeah i so if i so this is purely informational here if you only if you only ask one of your parents to sign legit things yeah, and never dude. have and then you could mr mm. ripley your dad in that case right because uh-huh. the school's never actually seen your dad's signature they've seen your mom's you know <laughs> i i had to uh get something signed once when i was like very young i think like second grade or something and like my dad was just like too lazy to get out of bed and sign it, and he just told me to forge his name. Oh and again, like to go pairing with like the the bad at lying, I did a horrible job, and, and the teacher was just like, "This is obviously forged." And like I explained the situation, and he was like, "I think this is true because like that's too this crazy. Is too, it's too weird of a, of a lie." Yeah. yeah. Um, but I would go see because to me that just sounds like I'm recording an episode of You're Tall, but I'm standing in front of you. And that's that's, that's uh, right in my uh, wheelhouse. Cool. Okay, I like it. All right, last question. It's been a long crime spree, but we're finally nearing the end. All right, the fuzz are after you. What do you eat to keep up your strength and appear like an ordinary traveler? Gin. Well, yeah, <laughs> it is the 1950s. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. A, you fear neither the law nor the glycemic index, so it's lattes and rolls, baby. (laughs) B, you're intoxicated by the relief of getting away with your crimes, and you so you enjoy gorging on pheasant. Or C, I love to do 10,000 murders, then drink 85 espressos before my interview with Inspector Fettuccini. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Real thing Tom Ripley does. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Like, why am I nervous? <laughs> I have diarrhea. Unconditionally, it's A, as a carbs guy and as yeah. someone who constantly is disregarding lactose realities oh, and yeah. having milkshakes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm with A too. You gotta have some some carbs if you're gonna do some cardio. Mm-hmm. Uh I uh and like the espresso is just gonna that's gonna only exaggerate my deficiencies in all the other areas of, of con manning. So. <laughs> I want like two, I would have a latte or two, but I don't want to be like gacked on caffeine. Right. I mean, I like 85 espressos is just me on a normal day. You know? I was going to so, say, <laughs> if you drink coffee at bedtime, you're a madman. Yeah, I do. Yeah. No, I, yeah. yeah oh I my God. That. Yeah. I have my, I have my damn nightly <laughs> 1 a.m. coffee. I mean, that's a real thing that I do. And I go right to sleep. It's like when you do, you, you gotta, you just gotta like, you gotta beat your body into submission on the caffeine thing. It'll but work. That's it takes the some indica. Time. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> there's uh, but something no, I, in look, addition to the look, caffeine. 
<laughs> that sounds nice, actually. Mm-hmm. Particularly on vacation, right? I'm, I am, uh, I am also a carbs person. Like I'm, like if I'm in a hotel buffet and they got some like three thousand calorie like cinnamon roll, it's like fuck yeah. So I, I think that I think that's what I'm into. <laughs> because Katie offered us no um, meat sweats option, which would be well, I mean, fa- usual. It, no, oh, exactly. Pheasant, I mean, right. I'm, yeah, I mean, actually, I want the, the sausage and the steak, but uh, I mean, pheasant's nice, but it's not It's not really going to fuel the murder like we need, you know? It's oily, and it's yeah, also, like, true. not a big-ass piece of meat. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> 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 all right. Well, congratulations to all of you, because you're, you're on a boat, and you're near in the harbor, and there is not a fucking cop in sight you're home free <laughs> you're yeah. crimi- criminals on the run from only your possibly your dietary choices and or um and or refrigerator <laughs> we did it hey. all right nice uh, yeah that's excellent uh, us i can't three. believe we made it <laughs> <laughs> us three cop zero that's what i like to hear oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah um well thanks Devin. we're so glad that you could join us it's and we love the podcast uh thank you guys so much i had a great time uh and we'd love to have uh you all uh in whatever combination on your tall anytime i know uh we've talked with megan about doing an episode and we'll we'll uh try to do that sometime in the new year cool. yeah that, yeah. i can't wait i manipulated them into letting me come <laughs> podcast <laughs> uh, required no manipulation we, we were going to ask you at some point anyway so <laughs> well this has been better than dead you can find Devin on twitter at stale cooper and you can find the podcast you're tall but i'm standing in front of you at your tall pod you can find me on twitter at tussersaurus you can find katie on twitter at katie crywo you can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod. And email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com. But only to tell us about how you once saw half a movie. And tell us, like, did you manage to sell it to your dad? <laughs> did you do your homework? Um, our intro music is Love Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo is created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, we're taking a little December break, but we will be back very soon with the rest of season five. So we still got Mrs. Dalloway, Persuasion, Lady Chatterley's Dicks Out for Fash, uh, <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress, lots more. So thanks, comrades. <laughs> <laughs>